This morning we kick off a brand new teaching series called Love Never Fails. It's uh, an effort over the next couple of weeks to talk about the challenging times in which we live and what it means to follow, uh, even if I might use a four-letter word, obey, Jesus' command to be people of love uh, in a world, quite frankly, that is not very good at loving each other right now. And what we want to talk about as we launch into this new teaching series is posture. Uh, what kind of posture are we to adopt as followers of Jesus in the world in which we live? I think all of us would agree that we would characterize our current world as polarized. Uh, we would say maybe it's angry. Uh, we would say divided. Uh, I think many of us, if we were being honest, we would say it's... Uh, it's tenuous, uh, fearful. Uh, maybe there's a sense in which there's a lot of suspicion that exists uh, where we are. And so we ask ourselves the right question then, how do we live in a world like this? How do we live in a world like this? And I think the natural human response is that we build towers. Our natural response to living in a world like this, polarized, divided, people suspicious, lots of anger, fear, uh, division all around, is that we as human beings, we tend to build towers. Now here's what I mean by that, is that we, uh, we define what we believe is true or what we think is right, and then we build structures around it, and then we house ourselves inside of that in polarization or separation from anyone else who we might perceive as even slightly different than us. We build towers around things we think are right or true or the best path forward. And we have to ask ourselves, why do we do this? And I think there are really two profound reasons that we as human beings are natural tower builders. Uh, and the two reasons are fear and pride. Fear and pride. As I consider the world around us, and as I look deeply into the Scriptures, this is, these are the reasons I see people building towers. Now, let me pause and say this. We say that towers are, are things that are structures, systems, uh, fortifications, walls that are built around what we perceive to be right or the best way forward. So, let's pause and say, like, we can build towers on politi around political issues, right? We can build towers around social issues. We can build towers around theological issues. There are lots of towers inside the framework of the church. We can build towers uh, around uh, foreign policy issues, nationalism, globalism. We build towers around economic issues, capitalism, socialism, some hybrid uh, of the two. The towers, we build towers in, in academic settings, academia versus non-academia, science versus skeptical. We build towers even when issues arise in our world. So there's all kinds of towers that are built in and around the issue of COVID in our midst. How we respond to COVID, um, the, the origin of COVID, all these different things. The, the natural human intuition is to build towers. Here's what I think is right. Here's what I think is the way forward. Now let me build fortifications around this for one of two reasons, either fear or pride. So 
Out of fear, we build towers that are defensive, right? We build towers that are defensive because we're afraid of other perspectives on things and we're afraid of the advance of other things. And so we close ourselves within the structures that we've built. We fortify them as hard as we possibly can or as solidly as we possibly can. And then we tend to start lobbing bombs from behind the tower, don't we? Right? And the greatest battlefield on earth right now is called social media, right? If you want to throw bombs, you can go on any platform on social media. People behind their towers just launching bombs indiscriminately, hoping they land somewhere and have impact. We let you in on a little secret. You have zero impact on social media, okay? Zero impact on social media. But that's what we do, right? We think we, what we believe we think is right, and therefore we think we're speaking truth, but what we're doing is lobbying indiscriminate bombs, uh, disengaged from people, hold up behind our towers. And what actually begins to happen is these defensive towers, they actually become factories of hate. Because what we begin to do is view everyone outside of the tower that we're in as our enemies. And very quickly, (laughs) this begins to spiral out of control. Because everyone in the tower is agreeing and saying the same thing and affirming this viewpoint. And then we begin to act in disdain towards others. Towers are a scary reality. There's a second reason we tend to build towers. I said it's the issue of pride. That is that... um, I know what is true, and I know what is the right path forward, and I'll show everyone, right? And so the tower is not a defensive structure. I would suggest to you the tower is a shrine of worship, uh, largely to yourself or to the people that are pursuing it, in the sense of, look at us. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at how I'm responding to this issue. If only everyone saw the world the way I saw it, then it would be such a better place. Hmm, who's getting the glory in that situation? And this, this pride that motivates us to respond to issues and, and truth in that way, it leads us to hate in a very different kind of way. Not necessarily fearful hate that's afraid of an incoming invasion, but mm, disdain, smugness, condescension. Look at those people. They don't understand. Maybe they'll come around. And all of it is based upon separation. And friends, what I want to tell you this morning is that to be a Christian is absolutely to not be a separatist. Jesus says, I I did not desire to take you out of the world. I have intentionally left you within the world. See, tower building is a profoundly dangerous thing that humans do. One, because it separates. Two, because it's derived in fear and in pride. If you read the Scriptures at any level of depth, you understand that we're told time and time again never to act on those two realities, correct? But there's an even bigger issue at play here that I want to hopefully expose us to this morning. And that is, it's really actually an identity issue. When we're building towers, 
we're actually making identity statements about ourselves that are factually untrue. Jesus says, here's who you are. You're a child of God. You're, you're my, my bride as the church. These are our new identity statements. And what we unfortunately do in tower building is we take causes or truth or paths forward as good as they may be. I'm not here to tell you one that, that your beliefs are incorrect. I'm, I'm, we're talking about how we go about them. What's actually happening is you're now placing your identity in that particular thing rather than in Jesus Himself. Does this make sense? Do you see how this is happening? And so it goes a little bit like this. I'm a Republican. No, you're not. That's an identity statement. You're a Christian. Oh, I'm a Democrat. Mm, No, you're not. That's an identity statement. Can you vote Democrat? Absolutely. Can you vote Republican? Of course you can. Those aren't identity statements. And when we elevate them to that, we understand that we've built towers and we're in danger of leading radically divergent lives from the ones that Jesus has called us to build. We don't want to be people who live cowering in fear. And we don't want to be people who are so self-righteous that no one would want to even consider what we actually might believe to be true. We don't want to be tower builders. Remember the story in Genesis chapter 11? A famous story about building towers. The, the people on earth have decided, they're in the, pla- the, the plains of Shinar, and uh, they've decided that they want to build a city, right? Fair enough, good idea. But they also decide within this city they want to build a tower. Now, you've probably heard of this as the Tower of Babel. You've heard this story before, perhaps, right? And you know that it doesn't end well. This tower building, as we find out, is actually not a good human vocation. But let's kind of read through the story together. Genesis chapter 11, if you have a copy of the Scriptures. If not, it'll be up on the screen here for you. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, Uh, incidentally, in the Bible, whenever people are moving west, good stuff is happening. Whenever people are moving east, bad stuff is happening. Why? I'm not certain, but this is true in Scripture. Uh, As people move eastward, they found there a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. Fine. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Everything's good. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. What's their purpose? Pride, right? This is about, look at us. Look at what we've done. What's their other purpose? Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Fear. Defensive structure. And so they erect this tower. It says, but the Lord came down. I love how the Bible, how the, the authors of the Scripture narrate these stories. Right? They're going to build this huge tower all the way to the heaven. And we need to hear right from the beginning that God's got to come down in order to eventually see it. Right? So they're pretty far off. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, confuse their language so they will not understand each 
other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. God understands that human beings, we can't help ourselves apart from Him. We're tower-building kinds of people. And that without His intervention, we are going to be continually doing this. Cowering in fear against the world as we see it. We're self-righteously building a monument that sneers and is smug and condescending towards people around us on any particular issue, whether we happen to be right or wrong on the issue, when we build a tower around it, we've failed on our Christian vocation. We shouldn't be surprised about this because what we see in the life of Jesus is someone who avoided towers. Now you say, if you've astutely read the New Testament, Adam, I don't think there's any passage where Jesus encounters a tower. You're right. But, There were plenty of towers in the days of Jesus. They were towers built around political and social and religious issues, just like in our day. In fact, most historians and scholars will point to at least four predominantly huge towers within the Jewish um, people of the day. Perhaps you've heard these towers before. There were the Sadducees. You heard about the Sadducees? The Sadducees were sort of a ruling class who were um, very welcoming of the Roman rule of the day, and they had sort of uh, syncretized their Jewish faith into uh, the Roman thought of the day, and they had the posture of, let's just embrace this and syncretize, and everything will be fine that way. Tower. There were also the Pharisees. Now, we hear a lot about the Pharisees in the New Testament. The Pharisees' tower was very much a tower around the Old Testament law, right? So much so that the edifice they built around it uh, went way beyond what the law actually said. Right? God says, keep the Sabbath holy. The Pharisees say, we've got to add about 3,000 extra laws to that so we make sure we keep the Sabbath holy. But their belief was, <clears throat> if we can just be obedient to this law, then God will come back and rescue us. Tower. There's a third tower. Have you heard of the Zealots? The Zealots were a group of people in the days of Jesus who believed that they needed to move militarily to eject the Romans out of Israel. And so they, planted, or they planned all kinds of um, you know, uh, terror, basically terroristic assaults on Roman officers uh, and Roman sympathizers. Tower. And then there was a group called the Essenes. Maybe you've heard of them before. The Essenes were out-and-out separatists. They believed the only way God was going to come back and rescue them is if they lived utterly holy lives. Excuse me. And they believed that the people of God could never do this. So they had to get a select few who would remove themselves from the people of God. They went out and lived separately from them. They tried to live this holy and blameless life so that God would come down. They were erecting a monument, a tower. What's fascinating about Jesus is that when He shows up on earth, He intentionally doesn't align Himself with any of these four groups. Isn't this fascinating? These were the four ways in which people understood how they were supposed to respond to the world around them. 
These were the towers that were built. If God was going to do something, it was going to happen in one of these ways. And yet Jesus shows up. He doesn't sign up with the Sadducees. And He doesn't sign up with the Pharisees. He doesn't sign up with the Zealots. And He doesn't sign up with the Essenes. He lives a radically different kind of life. And what's even more fascinating to me is that as Jesus lives, people from those towers actually begin to emerge and join Him to live His way. So that Simon, one of his twelve disciples, was a zealot. And Nicodemus, who begins following him at some point in his life, was a Pharisee. And many people believe that the disciples who were initially following John the Baptist were part of the Essene movement. And we understand that John's disciples begin following Jesus. See, Jesus lives a radically different way. A different thing that actually calls people out of these towers in towards a different mission. So, if we're not supposed to be building towers, then how are we supposed to engage in such a broken, divisive, polarized world that we find ourselves? And my answer to you is this. We are not towers. We are temples. We're not towers. We're temples. You say, well, that doesn't make sense, right? All this structure analogy, enough already, Adam. What was a temple in the Old Testament? What was the purpose of the temple? Does anyone know? In the Old Testament, there was a singular purpose for the temple, right? The temple was the place where God would come and dwell so that He could live amongst the people. It was a, a place that could house God, where He could dwell so that He could live amongst the people. You could say it this way. It was a place where heaven and earth perfectly intersected. And it was the only place on earth where heaven and earth intersected. And God came to live there because He wanted to be with the people. Because He wanted to be in relationship with them. Because He loved them and because He wanted to constantly restore them. And people would come to the temple because they wanted to be in relationship with God. They wanted to meet with Him. They loved Him and they wanted to experience the restoration that only He could offer. It's a beautiful thing. It's an incredibly important picture. Jesus shows up on earth. And when He does, the Gospel writers correctly announce that a new temple is under construction. Many of us get uh, infatuated with the Old Testament temple and it needs to be rebuilt and all of these things. And I would say to you, you're actually missing the point if you're pursuing that level of logic. That the Gospel writers, predominantly the Gospel of John, but others as well, want us to see that Jesus is actually the new temple Himself. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth now intersect. That Jesus in His very incarnation, when Jesus comes from heaven to earth, what is actually happening is a new temple is under construction. Listen to how the Gospel writer John writes it. This is what he says. In the beginning was the Word. Right, That's his way of talking about Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. And, and Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. And it goes to verse 14. The Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and He made His dwelling 
among us. If we were to translate that literally, it would be, he pitched his tent in our neighborhood. Or, if we could translate it even more literally, the the word in the original language means he tabernacled amongst us. Now, for those of you who know Old Testament history, you know that before Solomon built the temple, the Israelites constructed what they called a tabernacle. It was a moving temple because the people were coming out of Egypt and they were on the move through the wilderness. And so the temple had to be mobile, had it had to move, but God was dwelling there and He was leading them. Now the Gospel writer John wants us to see that when Jesus comes to earth, it's not just this cool thing that we can build a holiday called Christmas around. What's actually happening is the temple is once again going mobile. And it is constructed in this very person. Now think about the implications of this with me for just a second. If there ever was a tower that you ought not leave, perhaps we could call that tower heaven. Right? The place of perfect truth and everything right. And yet... Jesus, in His incarnation, actually declares that God's loving pursuit of humanity in restoration actually demands that He emerge from the tower of heaven. Incredible. Now, maybe you've never thought this way, but it's important for us to stop and think. Do you ever think as Jesus was contemplating His arrival, right, as He was sitting at the departure gate from heaven awaiting his flight to earth, right? I don't mean to be crass, but you get the point. She's pondering, what is it going to be like down there on earth? Will these people be like me? Will they think like me? Will they have the same politics as I do? Will they have the same views on sexuality as I do? Will they hold truth in the same way that I do? My guess is that at some level, Jesus pondered these things and came to the definitive answer, no, they won't. They will have a very different view than me on all of these things. And yet, he still emerges. Why? Because his desire to bring the presence of God into the midst of people who are in desperate need of its restoration foregoes any hesitation that he might have on having to live in relationship with people who see, experience, and practice life in a very different way than he does. Jesus comes. Jesus' incarnation is the construction of a new temple. And I would suggest to you, his life is the temple embodied. That is, what does it look like for God and man to live in perfect harmony? For heaven and earth to actually intersect in its full beauty? And the answer is, look at the life of Jesus. And look at how He lives. How do you live amongst people who have different political opinions than you? How do you live amongst people who hold truth in a different light than you do? Even if, if biblically you are correct and they're wrong. How do you live amongst people who have different ethics than you do? Or see the world differently economically than you do? Jesus gives us the exact plan. Again in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 5, this is what the Gospel records for us. He says, Jesus gave them this answer. 
they're asking him, hey, how do you do these things, you know, miracles specifically? Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. Fascinating, right? If anyone could do anything by himself, it ought to be Jesus. Jesus says, I can't do anything by myself. I can only do what I see my Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. How do we live in a world like this? How did Jesus willingly enter a world like this? How did He conduct Himself? By doing the very things He sees God doing. That is living out the character of God to everyone he encounters. At its core, the character of God is the reality of love. And so we find in Jesus someone who is more than willing to push the limits of hanging out with, dialoguing with, loving, embracing people who see the world radically different than he does. It's not an issue for him of condoning. It's not an issue of him of of being pulled away. It's an issue of him understanding that if if heaven is going to intersect earth, if God's presence is going to be amongst these people, then I have to be amongst these people. Perhaps it's no more powerful than in the story. Remember remember Zacchaeus? And we have Sunday school lessons about Zacchaeus, right? And we, oh, he's this little dude. He's up in a tree. Cool story. He's a cute little guy up in a tree. Zacchaeus was a bad dude right? He saw the world wrong in just about every way, right? He oppressed the poor. He was on the side of the Romans against the Israelites. He was greedy. He stole money. He was a tax collector. Everything would have been diametrically opposed to how Jesus saw the world. But Zacchaeus is up in a tree. He wants to see who Jesus is. But there's something fascinating happens in the story. Jesus walks by and he stops and he looks up and he says to Zacchaeus, oh, actually, I was looking for you. Now think about that posture for a minute. It's the exact opposite of a tower posture, isn't it? This is Jesus out there wanting to, and what does he want to do with him? Does he want to debate him? <laughs> does he want to convert him? Right? Does he want to, to show him all the ways in which he's wrong? No, he wants to have dinner with him. Now this is fascinating. But through Jesus' engagement of love, The eyes of Zacchaeus are open wide. He sees life for what it's meant to be. Listen, not every story is going to end so quickly and so beautifully. It's the Zacchaeus story, right? But Jesus shows us another way. He shows us how to live in a world that's that's divided and polarized and and people that are, are living nervously and in fear. He shows us. You do the things that you see God doing. What's more, you say the things that you see your God saying. John chapter 12 is what Jesus says. I did not even speak on my own, right? First, I can't do anything on my own. I do what the Father says. Now he says, I can't even speak on my own. But the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. So that Jesus, when he's talking, when he's answering questions, when he's graciously receiving people, when he's responding people, when he has to speak truth that could be hard towards people, he's doing it in the same manner that God speaks towards people. He's speaking words, he says in that verse, that lead to eternal life. Now again, we have a wrong idea of eternal life. We think of eternal life as, oh man, we're going to live forever in heaven someday. Fair enough. Right? That's part of it. 
But eternal life, again, Jesus defines eternal life. I'd rather go with his definition than a theological textbook. Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 3, he says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, he's talking about God, that they know you and me, the one whom you've sent. Is that Jesus defines eternal life as a dynamic relationship between God and man. Heaven intersecting earth. God in relationship with people. That's where true life happens. We're so interested in correcting people. We're so interested in proving that everyone else is wrong and we're right that there's no hope for intersection because we stand behind towers. And Jesus said, no, I just want to have dinner with Zacchaeus because crazy things happen when the presence of God gets in front of people who actually are looking for that very thing. Jesus said, how do you live in this way? You just do the things that God does and you say the things that God says. Now listen, when I read the Gospels, one of the things that just astounds me is Jesus seems to just be, I don't want to say nonchalant, because he's not nonchalant, but doesn't he seem to like walk around like kind of free? Like not feeling like everything hangs on how I'm going to deal with this next situation. He's kind of free. He's willing to engage with people, and, and sometimes people say, yeah, I believe you, and sometimes people say, you're the devil, get away from me. And he's like, okay. You know, I can't make decisions for you. And there's a sense in which Jesus can enter into this, this mission of being the temple, this vocation of being the temple, in utter confidence. Why? Because for Jesus, two things are settled matters that are critically important. His identity is a settled matter. It's not up for grabs. He's certain about it. And it defines everything He does. And truth for Jesus, is a settled matter. It might not be settled for anyone he comes in contact with, but it's a settled matter for him. And so it's not something he has to engage in fear. Listen to what he says in John chapter 14, awfully famously. He says, listen, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are settled matters for him. And so there's no need to cower in fear. But there's also no need to stand up and speak in a condescending way way. And how do we know that at the end of the day, Jesus wasn't just building a tower? How do we know that this truly is an act of love and humility? John chapter 2. Maybe you remember the story. Jesus goes into the temple. And uh, you remember there's people who are, who are trading goods and exchanging money in the temple. And Jesus like, basically throws a tantrum, right? He, throws tables over, he whips at people and stuff. And really what's going on there is not that trading is going on, it's that, that rich people were oppressing poor people by taxing them to exchange money for sacrifices that they needed. It was bad stuff. And then Jesus is talking about the temple and he says something that had to really offend lots of people. He says, listen, go ahead, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Now, do you know how long it took them to build that temple? We're talking about years and years. Like, probably even longer than it's taking them to do construction on 22, right? We understand how this goes. Like, even longer than PennDOT takes for construction, probably. This is massive work. And Jesus is like, yeah, just destroy it. I'll build it again in three days. He's not talking about the physical temple. He's already, right at the beginning of his ministry, understood that he's the new temple. And the destruction is going to come on him. He's talking about his death on the cross. 
that three days later, in His resurrection, the temple will be finally established. The construction will be complete. And God will once again permanently dwell amongst His people. Heaven and earth intersecting in finality. Jesus isn't building a tower because His mission is so profound that it actually ends in His personal human destruction. Now who signs up for a mission like this? Someone who believes that the only hope for our world is the presence of God radically invading the people where they are. Someone who is so committed to the love of God for humanity. And we are right to pause and reflect on who Jesus is and what He has done and the hope that He has opened up for you and me who apart from this reality are hopeless. Separated from God without hope of experiencing this life that we've all longed for now and into eternity future. But we also have to pause and think then. Okay, if that's who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus has done, and if we're called to follow Jesus, then who are we? And the New Testament is replete with statements of identity about us. Calling us, you guessed it, temples. Right? Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus was the chief cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets were stones laid in. And then we too are being placed into this great structure, this great temple as, quote, living stones. That, that concept of living stones repeated again in 1 Peter. But maybe nowhere more succinctly is this identity statement made than in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes this, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? He's talking about them collectively as a church. He's also talking about them individually as people. What is a temple? A place where God dwells. Jesus, before His crucifixion uh, and before His ascension into heaven, says something that must have been so confusing to His disciples. He said, listen, it's actually good for you and good for this world that I go away. What a bizarre thing to say, right? This makes no sense. No, we need you here. He said, because if I go, then God will send His Spirit. Now listen. This is so important because when the Spirit of God comes, the temple is now not only mobile again, but it's multiplied. Do you see it? Because the Spirit is not confined to one human body like Jesus was, but now dwells in everyone who has been transformed in a new creation by their true and genuine belief in the Gospel. That's right. It is better for the world that Jesus goes away so the Holy Spirit can come and empower you to be a mobile temple where you are. But if that's your identity, then you can't build towers anymore. Yes, you can vote. 
Yes, you can have political opinions. And you should have convictions about those things and be passionate about them. I think so. You should have passionate beliefs about social issues, especially those, one, those ones that the Bible speaks succinctly about. You should have passionate opinions about foreign policy and, and all of these things. Of course, just don't build towers around them. Because that's not who you are. It's what you think or how you believe. Who you are is a temple. And temples are on the move. And temples exist actually not for themselves. You see this? Temple exists for two people, right? It exists for God, and it exists for other people who want to meet God. So you now exist profoundly not for yourself. You exist so that God can come and dwell amongst the people who occupy your spheres of influence, where you eat, play, work, and live. And if you are cowered behind towers, then you can never embody this commission to be a temple for God. Talked about Sunday school lessons like Zacchaeus. Here's a Sunday school song that many of you know, probably all of you know. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? Like, hide it under a bushel, no, I'm going to let it shine. Can we just change the words just a little bit? Hide it behind a tower? No. I'm going to let it shine. I'm a temple. This is who I am. This is my identity. Now that doesn't mean you stand and condescend. Look at me, a temple. No, no, that's tower language. Or I'm a temple, I must protect this thing. God doesn't need your protection. He's more than capable of defending His own name. That's not your calling. Your calling is to go take Him in the midst of people so that they can encounter Him. How do you do it? You do the things you see God doing. You're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to have an intimate relationship with God, but I'm not going to be like Jesus. Fair enough, right? What do we know about Jesus? The New Testament tells us rightly so. Jesus, in fact, says it of Himself. I am the image of the invisible God, right? So you don't have to have this strange mystical relationship where you see God doing things and then you go do them. You just have to read the Gospels and see what Jesus did and then go do likewise. Right? If you want to do what God does, do what Jesus did. You mean it's as simple as that crazy bracelet we used to wear 20 years ago? Yeah, kind of, sort of, right? You do the things Jesus does. Well, how am I going to answer people? I have to defend myself. Oh, they say, no, no, no. Say the words that Jesus says. You know, we were talking about this in our community group last night. Jesus gets asked an obscene amount of questions in his life. And I think statistics say that he directly answers three of them. <laughs> what he ends up doing is telling stories, asking more questions, trying to understand where people are coming from, and helping them begin to understand the world in a different way. You are, we are so caught up on ourselves. What am I going to say? How am I going to win this person to Jesus? How, how am I going to change their view on these things? Stop it! That's tower language. Go be with people confident because your identity and truth are settled matters. They're not up for grabs for us. We know who we are. And so we go live amongst people. We eat with them. 
We, we engage with them. We have conversations with them. We lovingly embrace them. Is that going to maybe make some people uncomfortable? Yeah. Tons of religious people were super uncomfortable with how Jesus lived his life. Let the religious people get all worked up about it. We're not worried about them. We're worried about God and the people who need to encounter him. Set the, the religious people can live in their tower. That's not for us. Listen, friends, we can look at the world in two profoundly different ways. One is, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Or the other is, man, everything seems to be up for grabs. Perhaps there's no more fertile time for the gospel to actually take root. If I just go live the Jesus way amongst the people where I find myself and stop trying to convert them to a political ideology or a set of theological truths that they're not even willing to understand. What if we actually believed that core to our identity is we are moving temples? What kind of impact might we have? Here's what I know, friends. Love never fails. God's pursuit of you is a pursuit of love. And His call on you is a call to love. But before we ever get to talk about what it means to love or how we go about love, if we don't get honest with each other, and particularly ourselves, about the towers that we have wrongly built, again, listen to me, I'm not telling you that your beliefs are wrong. That's not, belief isn't the issue. Well, maybe it is. I don't know what your particular belief is. But largely the belief isn't the issue. It's the structure you built around it to either defend or, or condescend from behind. What if we actually emerged? What if the church actually emerged from hiding and lived a radically countercultural life? Not in a separate place, but right in the middle of the world. I think we'd begin telling some of the same stories that we see happen in the Gospels. People like Zacchaeus who are like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I was living that way. I want to live a different way. Love never fails. Can I pray with you?